0: Indeed, if you would, open your Bibles once again to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to know that I have done my due diligence this morning. I've had extra caffeine because we have a lot to cover. I think it's important for us to grasp what Paul is saying in its complete context. So we're going to cover the entire chapter today, which we'll be able to do. And I trust you've done your diligence. You've had caffeine, so you can listen quickly as well. And uh, I think I'm trusting that this would be an encouragement to us uh, this morning. So let's pray, and we will jump into 1 Corinthians 15. Father in heaven, as always, we are grateful for the great privilege we have to gather together as believers to worship you. Knowing, Lord, that we have not gathered here to worship you, hoping that perhaps you will see our efforts and you will reward us with heaven not because, Lord, we are hoping that we would just feel somehow better spiritually and maybe have a better chance of making it, not, Lord, because we're hoping that by attending church somehow that will give credence to our life and and enable our good works to outweigh our bad, because, Father, none of those things will get us into heaven or gain us your favor. Father, we've gathered because we have been forgiven, because we have been guaranteed that spot in heaven, because you... Though you are very angry with sin and must punish sin, you are a good God who loves us and you are rich in mercy. With all that said, Father, we also know that you must punish sin. But that's why you sent Christ to be our substitute. And indeed, you did punish our sin by punishing him as our substitute. Father, there's really no way that we can express again the meaning of that for ourselves and how grateful we are. But we are speaking with the one who does truly understand all those things. And we thank you. And so, Father, we ask now that as we once again open your word, we pray, O oh Lord, that we would hear and grasp all that is being spoken of here. So, Father, we may be encouraged and strengthened and our joy may increase. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is doing so because these Corinthians have adopted one of several different false ideas. And they have a false idea of spirituality. And when you have wrong ideas, it can lead to disastrous consequences. In fact, it is so serious that Paul is warning these believers that they are in danger of denying the gospel. I don't think they were aware of that, but Paul is going to make sure they understand that. In fact, in verse 12, he says they were denying that there was a future resurrection of the dead. That's what we read this morning. They were not denying the reality of an afterlife. They were denying the resurrection of the dead in terms, I guess, of its bodily features. They were confused about both the reality and the nature of the resurrection body of believers. How in the world did they come to believe that kind of thing? Again, they had adopted a false view of spirituality, what it means to be spiritual. Paul was very, very deeply concerned about their false ideas because their denial of a future bodily resurrection was, in essence, a denial of the gospel. Because if the gospel is anything, it is a gospel that is centered in Jesus Christ, centered on the work on the cross and his resurrection. Christ's resurrection is not just any old resurrection, it is the resurrection, that which the scriptures anticipated. That which was the first fruits of the final consummation, consummated state that is to come. So Paul begins, really, as he often does, he's, he's going to speak to them logically. He's going to speak from his mind to their mind. Now, he's not avoiding their heart, but the biblical view of, of, the, of, of the human person is the mind and the will and, and the heart, all those things are kind of combined, the emotions, the thinking and the will are all together. We, we can talk about them separated, but we don't really listen that way. We never hear something only intellectually. We may make a choice to only be affected intellectually by certain things, but the idea is that the whole person is going to be affected by the message and by the truth. And so Paul then begins 1 Corinthians 15 by reminding them of what they both held in common it was the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no evidence anywhere that the Corinthians denied the reality of Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection is basic. Paul reminds them of the gospel in which the whole church believed. But something had gone wrong in their thinking. And so Paul proceeds to introduce the gospel message that he had received, which he had passed on. Verses 3 and 4. That's why he says, of first importance. What? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul is stressing here the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Paul is emphasizing the reality of Christ's death and the bodily nature of his resurrection. Paul puts great emphasis upon the resurrection appearances. For just as Christ was truly dead and truly buried, he was truly raised from the dead and seen by a larger number of witnesses on a variety of occasions and circumstances you may not always be aware of it but the idea of christ rising physically from the dead is something that is, continues to be in doubt non-believers they, they they may they may even go ahead and say well yeah maybe in some sense christ rose from the dead sadly to say some preachers have said that christ has been raised in our hearts that Christ has been raised in some spiritual sense, and they're removing it from what actually took place. In fact, Paul wants them to understand that when it comes to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that what they are, the way they're acting, which is revealing what they're thinking, that there is a logical inconsistency in their lives by denying that believers rise from the dead, that we will rise from the dead, that this body is going to be given life again. Again, that there's something about the body that maybe, kind of in a general sense, people think that that's just beyond belief. Some think that well, but that's not really important. It's the spiritual that's important, and that that idea is continued to catch on in many circles. That with, there's almost a denial of. The physical existence or the good of the physical existence or the necessity of physical existence. That really that you want to achieve whatever. We have to get like outside the body, outside of this realm, in the spiritual realm, in whatever way that may be defined by individuals. And we sometimes can do the same thing or begin to move in that direction. Paul was demonstrating to them that their view is logically inconsistent and so it should be simply rejected. Paul wants to establish that there is an internal contradiction between these two beliefs, that Christ has been raised from the dead, but there is no bodily resurrection of believers. Those beliefs cannot be held simultaneously. And so Paul is basically wanting to understand that if they consistently deny the future resurrection of believers, this will inevitably lead to a denial of the resurrection of Christ and then the gospel. And so he wants us to recognize that. So we should never, ever say to our children, to our grandchildren that, well, yeah, one day, you know, grandma or grandpa, they'll, they'll be, you know, they'll be alive, it'll just be different. No, you can boldly say they are going to rise again from the dead. People sometimes ask the question, maybe it's often, will we recognize each other? I don't know, are you going to forget what they look like? What, what, what makes you think they're going to be, some, they're going to be another being? Remember, they're not going to be an angel. They don't turn into some kind of an alien. They're not floating around like a ghost. The Bible says that they will be raised from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't floating around. He was walking. Remember, at one, t- one of the times he appeared to his disciples and he was cooking fish. He was cooking breakfast on the beach. Because he wanted to know that he wasn't a ghost. And then he ate some food. There's a reason why he did that. He wasn't trying to trick them or to fool them. He wanted them to grasp the reality because how we understand life is physically. Spirituality, our spiritualness and our, and our physicalness is intertwined intimately. And we don't have to separate that to somehow be on a higher plane or to really be in tune with God. Remember again, I'll mention this again later, in Genesis 1 when God created the physical earth, and the physical animals, and the plants, and man, God said it was good. And we need to remember that. So from what we read this morning, beginning in verse 12, Paul then, for the sake of argument, is going to take up their stance. Okay, let's say that what you're saying is true. So he hypothetically assumes their point of view for the sake of his argument, and so Christ has not been raised. Now, given the common confession of the church that Christ indeed has been raised, the Corinthian position is really a contradictory and it is impossible. But what Paul is assuming here when he gets into this is this, that we have an intimate, indissoluble, covenantal relation between the believer and Christ, between us and Christ, that we cannot be separated. Romans says that, what? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have, there's this union between the believer and between Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that, that we are in Christ. That's not just nice terminology to make us feel good. That's a reality. Christ lives within us. I know that's true. Not because I feel it, because that's what the Bible declares. And that's what it says. So then, because of this union, this relationship that the believer has with Christ... If Christ is raised, then the believer must also be raised. If the believer is not raised, then that does mean that Christ is not raised. Those are not two unrelated points. Paul wants them to know that they're intimately tied together. So that's why he makes four points in verses 12 through 19. If Christ has not been raised from from the dead, then both their faith and the apostolic preaching are in vain. It's without basis. Secondly, if Christ is not raised, then the apostles who have proclaimed the resurrection are false witnesses. They're distorting the truth. Thirdly, if Christ is not raised, then there is a sense in which God is implicated as well. The idea that since Christ's resurrection is in one sense not his own, it is God's vindication of the work of the Son, that means that a denial of the resurrection of the dead leads ultimately to a denial of the gospel altogether. And it levels an accusation against God himself that he did not do what he said he did. That's the connection he wants them to see. And fourthly, then, if Christ is not raised, then the Christian faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Dead believers are lost forever. If Christ has not been raised, then what guarantee is that, there, that his death for our sins accomplish anything? Because the dead Savior is no Savior at all. If there is no resurrection, Service is over. There's no, need, there's no need for me to pray. No sense for us to take communion. Let's just go home. And you'll never have to wear church clothes again. Because there would be no sense to. Paul concludes in verse 19 by stating, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all other men. We should be pitied because that would mean this. It would mean that the gospel has no substance. It would mean that faith is ineffective. It would mean that the witnesses are liars. It would mean that sin retains this destructive and damaging control. And believers who have died are irretrievably lost. Thank goodness for the word but. But, in fact, Christ is raised. So Paul reverses the argument when you get to verse 20. By appealing to what the Corinthians and he have in common, which is the resurrection of Christ. So since Christ has been raised, and Christ's resurrection is the resurrection, in fact, it is the first fruits of the full harvest that is awaiting the consummation, then the inevitable implication is not only the defeat of death itself, but also the future resurrection of believers. How could we say that death has been defeated if there's no resurrection? that would mean death has won and we believe with all of our heart that death is not the final word when we go attend a funeral of a believer we are all thinking that this is not it for that person we are all thinking that that person is alive at that moment not just because that's what the preacher says not just because that's how we've been raised and that's our culture what is the what is the basis for us to believe such things Well, it's because that's what's in the Bible. That's what God has given us. That's what it means to live by faith. And again, it's not a blind faith. It's not that we believe that that person who's dead really is alive because somehow I'm hoping that it's true because the alternative is really depressing. Because the alternative is depressing. It's because it's true. How about you? But I cling to that. I have all of my marbles are in one basket. That is it. Period. And I'm on board completely. And I know most of you, hopefully a lot of you, are on board with that as well. That is where we draw our hope, our sense of, of that the future is going to be good. When we say, I know in the end it's going to be okay, because it is okay. Paul is assuming three things when he gets into all of this. He kind of gets into it in the, in the text that God's son, He's the last Adam. Remember, there's a talk about the first Adam, the second Adam, the first Adam, the last Adam. The idea that Adam represented the human race. Adam represented man. Jesus represented man. Christ has inaugurated a new creation. That is evidenced in his death and resurrection and the gift of the Spirit. Christ has ushered in the age to come. It is an age that is characterized by the defeat of God's enemies, which is sin, death, and Satan himself. Even though this age has not yet been consummated in its fullness, because this awaits a second coming, it nevertheless is already here, both in reality and power. Secondly, Paul again is assuming that this union we have with Christ cannot be dissolved. And thus the bodily resurrection of believers. Gordon Fee says this, Thus Christ is the firstfruits. He is God's pledge that all who are His will be raised from the dead. The inevitable process of death begun in Adam will be reversed by the equally inevitable process of bringing life or bringing to life begun in Christ. Therefore, it is not possible for the Corinthians to say there is no resurrection of the dead. Such a resurrection is necessitated by Christ. And then, thirdly, Paul views the resurrection of Christ in light of God's sovereign purposes. We would call this an interim period, between the first and the second coming of the Lord. Not all of God's enemies have been subjected to him and destroyed, including death. That is why Paul speaks of the believers and all of creation, what? Groaning, awaiting the consummation and the resurrection of our bodies. So again, because God raised Jesus from the dead, Paul is confident that God has set in motion an inevitable chain of events. That will only be completed when all of God's enemies are destroyed, including death itself. That is why Christ's resurrection demands our resurrection, since if we are not raised bodily from the grave, then death again is never truly defeated, and God can never be all in all. Unless death is destroyed and we are raised, God as sovereign Lord of creation, history and redemption is placed in question. So once again, when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ today, we are also celebrating our future resurrection. We are celebrating the the absolute certainty that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And that we really will all be together as believers. That there's a reality to that. that. That we can actually sink our teeth into that. That again, we're not like how the world imagines us to be. A bunch of individuals who've been kind of duped into believing something like fairy tales. There's a huge difference between fairy tales and what we believe. Even non-believers who have no stake in the game, maybe even those who do not like Christianity, they have written about the differences when they read the Bible and they read the books of other religions. When they compare the mythology of other peoples compared to Christianity and say that it is not written as if it is a myth... It is written as if it is historical. There is evidences. There is proof. There's a completely different way that the Bible speaks compared to all these other books. We would, we would naturally assume, of course, that's the case because it's the Word of God and it's speaking truth. We begin the jump of the verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, he's going to give some further implications. There is a real puzzling practice that he brings up in verse 29. He's talking about baptism of the dead. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that, but let me just tell you that Paul is not saying that that's a good thing, proper thing, or right thing. He's just acknowledging they do that, and what he wants to do is to talk about what they are thinking about when that's done. Not are you thinking about whether this is right or wrong, but why would you do this? Because why were they doing that? Why were, they, why were they practicing, some of them anyway, this baptism for the dead? Well, there's nothing in the Bible that says you should do that, but there's three things about it we can say. Number one, I've already said it, there is no justification for making that a practice. It's not normative for the church. We don't, we don't do that. I'm sure you'd be stunned if I was to walk up here one day and say I'm baptizing so-and-so and he's being baptized for his parents who died three years ago. You're like, what, what is he, what's going on? You immediately think, you, you can't do that. That, that. That's not right. That's incorrect. And you would be right on that. Second, when it comes to what the meaning is, there's all kinds of speculation. To me, one that kind of holds water as to what they're thinking, which again, doesn't really amount to a hill of beans, but some believe that the reason why they were doing that was they were making a decision to be baptized for the dead person. And the reason why they would do so is because they had a desire to be, to be united with that person or that relative who's died. See, that's what Paul wants to get at. See, if that's what you're thinking, then you do believe in a resurrection of the dead. Why would you do this if you weren't thinking that? So again, no matter what the speculation is as to what this proxy baptism meant, again, Paul's argument is The behavior of the Corinthians in this matter is inconsistent with their denial of a future bodily resurrection of believers. Now, it doesn't always seem to be a big deal to us. I've had a few conversations in my life with individuals who have raised that, with unbelievers who said they just think that's foolishness. It's the idea, basically, that this is all there is. This life is all there is. That this idea that we're going to come back to life and people will even use words like a zombie. I'm like, where in the Bible is the resurrection like zombies? Jesus wasn't a zombie, right? He was a fully functioning individual, fully functioning human being in amazing ways. But the idea is, is that to them, that's just foolishness. They can't imagine that. And so because they can't imagine that, they just, oh yeah, it's, you know, people believe whatever they want, but really that just means this life is all there is. Which again, if you just think about it for a while, I th- I believe it leads to the inevitable conclusion, then, that if this is all there is, life is meaningless. And if life in general is meaningless, then everything you do is meaningless. And all of your relationships don't amount to a hill of beans. Really, nothing matters. You want to know why the world is acting in the crazy ways it's acting? That's why. Why not act the way they're acting? They're going berserk. They are, they are going insane because they have no hope. But they still refuse to acknowledge that, it, that their understanding of who God is, because again, Romans 1 makes it clear, everybody knows that God exists. Everyone knows there's a given of the dead. Everybody knows this. God has placed that knowledge in them, and man suppresses it. And when he suppresses what he knows to be true, that at least has to be part of the, part of the definition of insanity. To, to suppress what you know to be true, and that's what they do. So again, Paul is not in, in endorsing or condoning their behavior. He's just trying to demonstrate that the Corinthians are living in contradiction in the sense that their professed beliefs and behavior contradict each other, and it's a practical absurdity, and that's really what happens today. The individual, there's been several uh, philosophers through the years who have kind of gone into nihilism and the idea that everything really is meaningless, yet they still live their life as if life has meaning. In other words, they, they still love their wife or their husband. They still love their children. But that doesn't really make any sense other than maybe some kind of a weird emo- emotional uh, attachment. There have been, sadly, some philosophers who have come to grips with the real meaning of their belief in nihilism. And those individuals have left their family because it doesn't matter. Just pursue pleasure, pursue whatever they want because in the end, it doesn't matter. You know, they, if they get hurt, they get hurt. When life ends, it's over. So it's, it's you know, it just, it's not a thing. Verses 30 and 33, Paul turns to his own experience of behavior. He's asking these questions. Why has he risked his life? Why does he risk life and limb, if there's no resurrection of the dead? Why would he face peril and trials every hour? In other words, continually. Why would he go through all of that if there's no resurrection? What would he gain in facing opposition if there's no resurrection of the dead? The answer is nothing. When you think of all the believers of the years who have died for their faith, who've been tortured, even today, those who are being tortured, if there was no resurrection, why go through all that? There's no reason to go through those things. There's no no truth to hold on to. Save yourself some pain. You know, hold on to whatever you have left in this life because that's all there is. But they have thousands and thousands of individuals, young and old, not only facing death, being killed, because they hold on to the truth of the resurrection. The internet, as you know, doesn't always have a lot of good things to see. And I one time looked this up, and I'm I'm not sure how I found it. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, there was a a couple of cases where there were some villages in, I think it was Iraq, where the entire village was being wiped out because they they claimed to be Christians. And I saw a video, and they had about uh, 12, 15 men all lined up. And they were marching them out one by one to the edge of a dock. And they were shooting them in the head with a gun. And everybody could see this. And they were all just standing there. Nobody was running. Nobody was trying to flee or fight back. Nobody was cursing anyone. They just walked right out to the edge, stood there. They were shot. Their body dropped. Next in line. And when I'm watch- I was watching that, knowing that this is not a movie that this, is, this has happened, this had happened, you know, maybe a month or so earlier. It was really, in one sense, difficult to watch as I kept thinking about the reality of what I was looking at. And they were being killed, not just because they, they were not embracing Islam, it was why they weren't embracing Islam, it was because they were Christians. And all knowing they were going to die, you did not see one drop to their knees and we can't. You didn't see one begin to yell and say that he would believe in Allah. It didn't happen. And this has been repeated over and over and over and over again. It's unbelievable. If There's no resurrection. Don't bother doing that. Say you believe whatever they want you to believe. So Paul wants to get down to the nitty gritty of all of this. So beginning in 35, he wants them to understand the certainty and the nature of the resurrection body. He wants them to, to understand the physicalness of all of this. And I emphasize physicalness because in a sense, this is something that you and I, can, we can touch it. We, we can grab this. We can, hold, we can squeeze this. You know, our senses become involved in what he's talking about because he anticipates the skepticism that's going to be raised. where someone says, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So Paul wants to make very clear to them that the resurrection is not only future, but again, that it is what? Physical. It's a physical resurrection. It's a transformed body. Pattern after the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I can imagine some people are thinking, oh, here we go. So that's what it is. It's, it's this transformation. You know, we suddenly become a turtle or, or maybe an alien or something. I mean, how does this really happen? Well, as Paul gets into it, and begins to use, again, the logic that they are already familiar with, he's not merely talking about a reanimation or just a resuscitation of a dead body. All right? It's not that you're going to raise to, again, reanimate someone who's died of cancer, and when they're raised from the dead, they still have cancer. That's what he's talking about. Rather, it's a body that's adapted to the new conditions of the future. The body we have now is earthly, it is natural, it is subject to decay, The raised body is heavenly, it is spiritual, it is incorruptible. The final result is a glorious resurrection, a transformation of both the dead and the living, where again the final enemy, death, is swallowed up in victory. And so he's going to talk about the reasonableness of this. This is a reasonable thing. And so when you begin in verse 36, he appeals to what God has made in a natural order. You know, you get into that whole argument about you know, the seed and the dying of the seed and giving of life again and all those things they were familiar with. He wasn't just using that because it was a clever illustration. He wanted them to recognize the reality of what they knew to be true. Paul is appealing to what God has made in the natural order, to seeds and other kinds of bodies. It's an appeal, and this is used sometimes in Scripture, where an argument is made from the known to the unknown. You recognize this, and this is an analogy. This is a truth here that you can understand. It helps you to understand this over here. Paul establishes the reasonableness of the resurrection body from the way that God has ordered the natural world. So there's three steps. First of all, when one observes the way God has designed a seed, notice when the seed is sown and dies, life comes. Simple thing. Almost everyone knows that. You don't have to be a farmer to know that. We know that. No one knows how that happens. We just know that it does. That's the way things are. If You plant an apple seed. Now, I would probably encourage you to plant more than just one seed. But if you were to do that, what do we all expect to have happen? We expect it to be an apple tree eventually. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Right? And, and, we, and we expect that to happen. We understand that principle. We may not understand how that principle works, but we know that it does work. That's how, that's how it is. And So we expect the apple tree to grow. We plant the seed. Then the seed must die so the tree will grow. So in one sense, death is the precondition for life. If God has ordered this in nature, in this case the seed, it does demonstrate that out of death a new expression of life springs forth. We know that. We see it. When you plant an apple seed, you don't have a giant apple seed sitting in your yard. What do you have? You have a tree with branches and leaves, all, all the normal things we expect there to see. And we expect that tree then to one day produce what? Apples. That will look like the thing we got the seed from. That we'll be able to eat. So there's a complete transformation. It's completely different. And what, what seed you're planting, that's what we, that's what we expect to see. I can't even tell you this. If I plant some watermelon seeds, I don't want a giant watermelon seed in my yard. I want the watermelon. I don't care how many seeds it has. I want to be able to eat the watermelon. And that's the idea. It's really very simple. So even in death, in the natural world, death does not have the final word. God's purposes are not thwarted. So that is not to be lost on the individual. That is a reality. That's not just something that we just make up. I remember as a kid being told that, and when I was in school, the teacher would just say nonchalantly, yeah, the, the seed dies, and then it grows. And we would, you know, we'd, I forget what we planted. We had the little Dixie cups, and you put the seed in there, and, and you know, next, within a few days, there's this little plant. You know, and it was like, whoa, you know. How'd that happen? I guess the teacher was stupid, because they didn't know. They just said that's how it happens. That's the way God designed it. So that's why sometimes we think the, we, we look at these very simple things that we all know to be true, and we forget the wonder of it. We forget how incredible that is. But that is true across the world. And sometimes when we hear about some intellectual people, we call them that. And some of those individuals will talk about they're observing things and they've come to understand there has to be a God. Now, I'm not smart enough to think like that. You know I have to have I have to have revelation. That really helps me out. And these individuals are looking and they're watching a plant grow. And then this individual on their own goes, wow, there must be a God. Look at that. I'm, I'm not sure I would have come to that conclusion. But this individual has. But that's the way that God has designed it. Secondly, not only does the seed in the natural realm demonstrate that life arises out of death, it also displays, as I've already been spending time on, a transformed body. The end product of the seed that is planted does not look like the original seed. Paul stresses, his stress is on this massive discontinuity and the transformation that takes place. And again, by analogy, if God has so arranged and ordered the natural realm in this way, then why is it so hard to imagine that God, the sovereign creator and Lord, is able to transform our present body? Why is that so hard? present body will die and be buried, and out of that will be this transformed resurrection body. It is absolutely entirely possible. It is not too hard from God. He's already given us illustrations through the centuries. But that's what he does. Third, in reflecting on seeds and bodies in the natural realm, he also observes that God gives to each kind its own kind of body that is adapted to its own kind of existence. There's a specific kind of body that's designed for human existence as well as animal existence. Even in the realm of animal existence, there are different kinds of bodies designed for different kinds of animals appropriate for their own kind of existence, such as birds and fish. We would think it's foolish if someone had a a bird with scales on it. We don't expect to find a fish with feathers. I know there's a few fish that have wings, but they don't have feathers. There's different kinds of skin. And if you really get into it, if you read what the scientists say about, you read about the different kinds of skin these animals have and how it's perfectly adapted for their environment and what they want to accomplish, and what they want to do. And how they're able to survive extreme cold, extreme heat, or whatever the case may happen to be. It's really incredible. And God is the one who designed all of that. Not just to show you how great he is and what a master designer he is, but to show you that, once again, He is fully capable of designing a body that would be perfectly fit for the kind of existence it's supposed to have, whatever that thing is. And so there are different kinds of bodies depending on whether something is designed for celestial existence or earthly existence. Because he even talks about the stars and how they're different. Again, by analogy of this is how God has ordered and arranged the natural realm, then why is it so hard to imagine God doing this in the case of the resurrection body? Now, he does mention in here, I want to make sure we're clear on this point. He talks about the natural body and the spiritual body. I don't want us to misunderstand what he means by spiritual body. Because some people have, maybe I think in some cases, I think some people have purposely misused that word to deceive other people or to confuse them. Because I think it's clear from the context that Paul is not thinking of spiritual in viewing of an immaterial kind of view of the world. Paul is simply arguing that our future existence is an existence that will require a body that is adapted for the final state that is dominated by the Spirit of God. So to make it more clear, it's really a very simple way of looking at it, think of the word natural and supernatural. I'm going to have a, I have a physical body now, and one day I'm going to have a supernatural body. Now sometimes supernatural body can be confusing because you and our kids are raised on Marvel and DC comics. And so we think of these, you know, Superman and those types of things. So we're not going to be Superman. That would be really cool, but that's not what's going to happen. But it's, but it's a supernatural body, adapted for what? Living for all of eternity. That, that's what it is. It's a body that, will, that it will not be touched by sin. And so it's going to function in one sense in a completely different way, even though we will look very much the same. Now, I know at leads to some questions, which maybe it shows how shallow we are. Maybe we're just really curious, because a lot of people want to know, will I still be fat? Will I still be short? I really have no clue. But I can tell you this, it won't matter. It won't matter. I do think, here's a good question, I wonder if in the new order there's any mirrors. <laughs> you know, because we're all pretty vain. You know, we're looking in the mirror a lot. It, it won't really be necessary. I don't, think you'll, I don't think one day you say, hmm, I wonder how I look today. I, I don't think it's there. I don't think you'd be looking in the mirror and then kind of sucking in your stomach or whatever the case may happen to be. All right, because that won't be important. But your body will function perfectly in every way. So for those of us who are a little older, imagine if you did take a nap, you could wake up and there's no pain. And you could get up without any creaking or get up without having to stand there for a while. Like you, know, you got a bed and it's like, okay, hold on. You know, you'll have to do all that. I mean, it really is. It's. it's I mean, I look forward to that. It's going to be fantastic, and that doesn't get, That does not get old. So again, Paul wants to get into the certainty again of this resurrection because he wants them to understand this. So when you get to verses forty-five through forty-nine. God's plan, God's initiative, God's grace, God has sent another man, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant ahead of the new creation. By his obedience, he has won our salvation. In him, in the work on the cross, his resurrection, he's begun to reverse the disastrous effects of of Adam's sin, which will eventually culminate in the destruction of death itself. And all those who are found in him will be raised just as he was raised. So his main point in verses 45 and 49 is that Adam was given a certain kind of body at creation, a natural body, a body which as a result of sin is subject to death and decay. We will bear his likeness in our fallen state, but Christ is different. He's a life-giving spirit. His life is the life of heaven itself, for he is the God-man. And as the covenantal head of his people, his resurrection body becomes the pattern of our resurrection body, a spiritual body, or that is a supernatural body. So we know that Christ could do certain things uh, after he rose again from the dead. Some of those things, we don't know if he could do those things because he was Christ or if that's just the supernatural body. Like when it talked about there was a, the time that he in a room, the doors are shut, the windows are shut, and Christ disappears. Does that mean we can do that? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe he could just do that because he is divine. But none of us would be disappointed with our new bodies. That I guarantee you. But again, it's a physical reality, patterned after the body of Christ. And so these Corinthians, their false view of spirituality, led them to believe that they had assumed a heavenly existence now of some kind. And so they were denying the, they were denying the future resurrection of the dead. And Paul simply says, no. That final reality still awaits the second coming of the Lord. The fact that it will happen is certain, but it is future. It is future. But there's, there's also the absolute necessity of the resurrection. And so in verses 50 through 57, Paul has argued for the reasonableness and the certainty of the believer's resurrection body. Paul now completes his argument by insisting for the absolute necessity of it. Our perishable and mortal body must be clothed with that which is imperishable and immortal. So believers, whether dead or alive, must be transformed in order to enter the kingdom of God in its fullness. You have to be transformed, you can't get in. The God of redemption is also the God of creation. Again, Genesis 1 stresses repeatedly that God made everything good, which included the physical and material reality. But because of our disobedience of the first man, sin and death have now entered the world. So what is crucial to stress is since sin and death affect both physical and spiritual reality, So redemption, if it is to be complete, and God is to be all in all, then it must also affect both the physical and the spiritual realm. Sin and death must be destroyed, and for death to be destroyed completely, there must of necessity be the resurrection of the dead. You see, what happens is this. When you adopt false notions of spirituality, you begin to trivialize sin and trivialize death. And I believe, inevitably, you begin to trivialize life. That's what happens. And that's what we see again today in our society. Life is trivialized because death is trivialized. Oh yeah, people grieve and grieve heavily, but then they get over it. I still don't understand this. I guess it's... To some groups it has meaning. Where a group of individuals will get together and they'll go visit the grave of someone who is, has recently died and they all have their beer or whatever and they pour their beer out on the grave as a, some kind of salute to the individual. I'm like, what does that even mean? What are you doing that for? Like, what? Like, does it make you feel better? Or does it make you feel like you really love that person? I mean, I know there must be some emotional thing in there for those individuals, but that just doesn't make any sense to me. None at all. And maybe it's because I'm a Christian. And not because I'm, I, you know, they're, they're pouring beer on a grave. You can pour whatever you want. It's just, as a Christian, it makes no sense. Because there's, a, there's an emptiness to all of that absolute emptiness. And then, of course, we have individuals today who maybe are not in, in the area of philosophy, trivializing life, but when we see a growing trend in culture. It used to be a growing trend of just like gangs, but it's a growing trend in, in, in culture where human life is losing value. We already, People already predicted that when when abortion was was approved back in 73. See, so the only way that can be done is to trivialize human life. Now, the way they got around that for a while, and you're familiar with the arguments, the way they got around that was to say that it really wasn't a human being, that it wasn't a human being yet. That was a major part uh, of of getting them to try to argue past individuals who were bringing up moral questions, was that you're not taking the life of a human being. Not a human yet. yet. So they they successfully changed the the, uh, question from when does life begin to when is this embryo a person? And and that was actually a very brilliant move on their part in, in a negative way, but it was a very brilliant move. And so it moved people away from some of the main tenets of the arguments of what's going on there. But you see, that's spread from there. You know, there's, and we know this is already happening in certain countries in, in Europe, and it has been proposed here and it does take place in our country where there's the practice of euthanasia. And it starts out again with a brilliant argument But the individual who is in the last leg of life. They have, they have no consciousness, no nothing, so we just unplug them. And then it's moved to those who are suffering unbelievable pain, and there's no way they're going to recover, so unplug them. And now it's moved to what? The individual who's been told you're going to be facing a lot of pain. You don't have to go through that. That's not, there's no plug to pull. So it will give you an injection. And then, of course, that also then leads on to quality of life. Well, what kind of life can they really have? And, there, and that leads to then being merciful and gracious to take their life. Except just so you know, for those who have... Various types of problems where this down syndrome or what have you that that we would that we would have said maybe when I say we I mean in a very general sense that we would say that they don't have it They're not facing a good quality of life There is no club of down syndrome people who say yeah, we wish we were aborted You don't have that They love life. I've met many and you've met many people who are severely handicapped from birth. Yeah, they love life They would be offended if you said they have no quality of life. It's true, they can't do what we can do, but they've never been able to do what we can do. They don't miss that, and many of them can do things we can't do. But they still, what, love life. And so the quality of life, who gives us the right to define what quality of life is? But see, that's what all this leads to. Who knew? (laughs) You deny Christ, deny the resurrection, deny our resurrection, and you can end up with that. And it's exactly where our society has gone. So the Corinthians do that view death as the scripture views it, as an abnormality, as an intrusion into God's good universe, as a robber, as an enemy to be defeated. The just penalty due to our sin and rebellion against God is death. They fail to understand why if God is truly to redeem his people in the world, if God's plan of salvation is to truly be complete, then not only must Christ be raised as a demonstration that sin has been dealt with uh, on the cross, but that death has been defeated as well. And that we must be raised with him. Without Christ's resurrection, without our resurrection in him, there is no biblical salvation in the complete sense of the world. So, how will this take place? When will this take place? At the end, in an instant, when the trumpet sounds. Those who are alive when Christ returns will be transformed, those who are dead will come out of their graves transformed. It must be so. Our bodies, whether dead or alive, in their present natural form, must be transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like like Christ's resurrection body, our resurrection bodies will be fitted for the new creation. Paul knows that if Christ is not returned before he dies, that he will be laid in the grave. But in spite of that, he looks in the face of of the reality of death and he makes a mockery of it. Why? Because God's redemptive purposes in Christ Jesus our Lord Jesus, who died for our sins, is now alive. In his death and resurrection, death has been destroyed because sin has been paid for and the demands of the law have been met. Jesus has nailed our sin to his cross, thus securing our justification, reconciliation, and redemption. In breaking the power of sin, paying its penalty, and satisfying the demands of the law, he has destroyed the power of death and removed its sting. Even though we may die before he returns, we shall, indeed we must, Be raised because we are in Christ, safe and secure. And even though we still bear the marks of this present fallen age, Christ's coming, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection is our guarantee. So what do we do with all of that? Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15 with this: stand firm. Let nothing move you. And combined with that. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now, I think that's important because he's not telling us to stand passively and just hold on and hope for the best. No, you stand firm and you get busy. You stay busy. You do those things that God wants you to do. As it says in Ephesians, that we've been created for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So to a church that is wracked with, ab- uh, with ab- abhorrent theology and division and discord, Paul brings these believers back to the sureties of the gospel. This is where they were to take their stand. This is where we must take our stand as well. If they were to remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of a pluralistic and pagan culture, they had to remove their thinking, the synchristic ideas that they had adopted and return once again to the truth of God's word. And the same is true for you and me. Living in a pluralistic and postmodern culture has incredible dangers if we do not keep our theological bearings. We need to heed seriously what Paul has said, his exhortation to stand firm and to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. So, you understand what that really means in practical terms? It's this Once again, God has designed the church, it's his body. He wants you and I as individuals to stand firm, but this message is given to the church. Our standing firm, we do this together. See, what makes us strong is each other. Just like in a marriage, right? They they can sustain each other through great times of tribulation because they have each other to lean on and to be encouraged and to go through with the struggle together. We should understand what we are up against in the world. As we gather together, just the simple gathering together week after week after week, which is should be our habit, is not an empty thing. It's not an empty ritual. It gives to you and me life and strength. It enables us to be encouraged. We come to know each other and see each other's struggles and victories. We share in each other's defeats and blessings. And so we pray for each other, with each other. We are, we are ministered to and we minister to others. And you don't have to be the one teaching to do the ministry. Being together, asking how others are doing, praying for them, whether you're with them or whether you're at home, all of those things are working together to enable you and I to stand firm. And then we do the work together. Whether the work is sweeping the fellowship hall together or sharing the gospel of Christ with others or someone praying for you as you share the gospel with a family member, we are working together. This is the work that God has called us to do. This is how we are able to stand firm. You try and do this on your own, to do church from home, from the couch, but it doesn't last long. It doesn't last long. You will grow weak in the faith. You will begin to drift from the truth of the Word of God. You will begin to experience misery and weakness, and it's a disaster for your life. It doesn't mean that you'll begin to, to, to fall into grave sin, though you could. But I guarantee you I know what it does mean. When you go through times of great difficulty and stress, the comfort that God comforts us with that surpasses human understanding, yeah, that may be missing because you've become a stranger from God. You've estranged yourself from him. You've cut yourself off from his blessings. You no longer hear his voice. When you read the word, sometimes it's now just words. There's no spirit in it. Not because it's weak. It's because if you are in the natural state again, you're in the flesh. And it seems that you have hindered the work of God in your life. I don't want any of you to have to experience that. When you go through the deepest, darkest trials... Because I'll do all I can. There's many here who do all they can to be with you in those times. And we can try our best to comfort you. But what we're all dependent upon is our comfort to be truly comforting to you is based on the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Comforting you with the Spirit that is the comforter. And so we work in unison together. There's the synergy that is there that God wants there to be in your life and my life. And I don't want anyone to go through those kinds of things alone. We need to make sure that we are working for our risen Lord and Savior, the Redeemer. And he tells us that if we do that, our labor will never be in vain. Because it will last for all of eternity. If the men would make their way up to the front, we're going to celebrate all of this in a few moments. Tom was going to come and lead us through communion. again let me remind you of this that when we celebrate communion together what we are doing here is we are thinking about history what Christ did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago but we are also what we do so because it has an effect on us presently I am saved and forgiven and I have hope because of what happened 2,000 years ago And am I experiencing the effects and the successful work of the cross? But along with that, we also are looking to the future. As Jesus told his disciples, that they would be partaking of that until he he comes again. And he will partake of that with them. And the idea is that we are always looking to the future. We're not living in the past. We're not living only in the present as if this is all there is. No, we know there is so much more that is coming. And so we partake of this because we partake of communion, which does celebrate the death, but also the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And I don't want you to forget that as we begin to move into the time when we reflect upon our lives and our faith and all that Christ has done. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your great blessing in our life. And we ask, Father, that as we, together in obedience partake of the ordinance of communion. We ask, Lord, that this will be an encouragement to our hearts, that we'll be able to do so, Father, as we worship you in spirit and truth, and that we'll be strengthened for the days and weeks ahead. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.